Please listen carefully. Hey folks, this is Crosshead Connor Radio, and you're listening to Chris Plentis. This week we have our first guest, Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, who is a clinical psychologist specializing in adults with anxiety, depression, adjustment to illness, and relationship issues. Uh, and we cover a number of topics. So we talk about anxiety, worry, uh, the difference between the two. Uh, we talk about procrastination as related to perfectionism. Uh, we talk about kids and how parents want to protect their kids, but possibly that ultimately might harm them and their coping skills. Uh, we talk about psychological immunity, um, different methods to treat anxiety, um, meditation, and being okay with feeling bad. So some of the topics or all of the topics that we talk about are pretty heavy, but chances are either you have dealt with some of these things or you know someone who has dealt with some of these things. And so uh, Jamie's a good friend of mine and I thought she could offer her professional thoughts on the matter. Now with that said, um, even though she is a professional, this is not to be taken as medical advice specific to you. So if you feel like you do need to talk to someone professionally, you can either get in touch with me and I can connect you and Jamie, uh, or obviously you can reach out um, and find someone on your own who is a professional and can work with you as an individual. So disclaimer aside, I want to warn you that occasionally you will hear Jamie's son Grant in the background with his fidget spinners, and that definitely seems to be a recurring theme with our podcast so far, Kids in the Background, which is totally fine. And real. The other thing is that our audio got cut off towards the end, so you'll hear a jump in topics. Uh, so just want to give you a heads up on that. So without further ado, enjoy this special guest episode with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman. All right. Hi, everyone. This is Chris Plentis, and I am here with Dr. Jamie Zuckerman, clinical psychologist, as my first official guest. <laughs> um, I thought that we could talk about some things related to work-life balance, stress, you know, people come to the gym and they're looking to kind of get get rid of stress, get get out of their you know minds about work and all that, and just kind of focus on work. Um, but I actually have a few questions, not even related to that, just okay. more about you. So, okay. um, what is your morning routine? My personal morning routine, yeah, um, would be honestly probably I wake up. I throw on clothes, <laughs> um, get to kids breakfast, mm -hmm. throw some food in my mouth while I'm standing, mm -hmm. and get them dressed, relatively and how, and cleaned. How, and how old are, are your kids? Uh, five and two. Got it. Yeah, so Gran is five. Gran is five and Whitney is two. Whitney's two. Yep. And um, I'd say the hardest part is the actual toilet routine. <laughs> um, that probably takes a good chunk of my morning, um, which I recommend don't struggle with them on. <laughs> and then getting the big one into the car and taking him to school. Um, it's not a set routine, and I actually recommend that when you have kids, as long as you kind of have an umbrella routine, mm -hmm. you actually probably do better with more flexibility within that 
Yeah, yes. so have, uh, you know what you need to do, but not being so rigid Correct. in terms of yes. time and all that. Yes, if you are very rigid, you will be late. Got it. So what, what time are is everyone up? Uh, probably between 7.30 and 8. And do you get up first before the kids? or the Not kids always. Are... Not yeah. always. Sometimes they're up first. Um, sometimes I'm up first. Yeah. I'll let them sleep. Okay. Yeah. yeah, I always let them sleep. If everyone's sleeping until 8.15, then I wake them. Got it. Yeah. And so Grant goes to school, you drop him off, I drop and then him off. where's Whit? And then the if I'm working, Whitney's with the babysitter. Mm -hmm. If I'm not working, Whitney's with me. Got it. Um, so if I'm working, I drop Grant off and I go to work. Mm -hmm. And then if I'm not working, then I will have Whitney usually for play dates or activities. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And where is John, your husband, in all of this? John is usually rushing to get out the door. Yeah. Um, yeah, usually rushing to get out of the door. <laughs> yeah, so he's doing that while you're getting kids ready and. Yeah, I mean he'll help. He helps with the kids where he where he can. Um, mm -hmm. Usually with the toilet stuff. <laughs> this is <his> area, <laughs> um, and he usually leaves before me. Gotcha. So. Okay. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah. Um, when you were little, what did you want to be when you grew up? A veterinarian. You wanted to be a vet. I did. And where did, did that come from? Did you have animals? I did had you... cats my yeah. whole life. I loved animals. That's all I ever wanted to be. Mm -hmm. um, and then I don't quite know what happened to that, except that I knew that schooling was really hard. And <laughs> so you, you actually looked into <laughs> yeah, vet school. Yeah, and, I, and I, I knew it was going to be a really long process, and you needed really, really good grades. Um, <laughs> and I just didn't have the energy. <laughs> hey, um, you got to know yourself, right? <laughs> Self-awareness. Um, but that was what I wanted to be, always, yeah. Got it. And then probably once I got to high school, I wanted to be a psychologist. Okay, so, yeah, so how did that come about? Um, I just always found it fascinating once I, once I knew it was a thing. Mm -hmm. I, never, I didn't know it was a thing that people had careers in. Mm -hmm. um, so once I realized that, I was always fascinated with how the actual brain worked and I kind of considered neuropsychology for a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm still fascinated by the brain, but that's kind of what led me into psychology. Gotcha. So, okay. Yeah. Did you have a, a psychology course in high school? I did, okay. um, but I was interested before then. But well, um, yeah, right. The but, interest led you to take yes, the course. And, yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Uh, and then I minor, I majored in it in college, and yep. went to grad school. Yeah. Uh, all right. So we're going to come back to that because that's okay. a good lead-in to what we're talking about. Um, but a couple more yeah. personal questions. What? Um, do you have any moments in your life that you would consider pivotal or like, um, you know, important that made you who you are today? It made me who I am. Um, let me think. You're putting me on the spot. I know. I'm totally putting you on the spot. <laughs> um, pivotal moments, for better or worse, let's think. Um, definitely having my first child, mm -hmm. for sure, because who I was. I know it sounds cliche, but who I was before kids is a completely different human being than who I was after. I don't even know what I did with myself prior <laughs> to kids or what I you focused like on yeah. or just yeah. what my priorities were. It's very odd. Um, I, I would probably, it's not so much a moment, but I would probably say made me who I am. My mom was a huge workaholic mm -hmm. and I think that made me very independent and kind of self-sufficient because I was by my, I was an only child so I was by myself a lot right um, and I think that 
definitely made me who I am as far as like resiliency and pushing myself and doing things independently. Um, I'd probably say that. I don't think it was one pivotal moment, but definitely having my first child for sure was, yeah. a, was a big one. But growing up, seeing your mom be such a hard worker, yeah. you yeah. modeled that, yeah. that for you. That yeah, I think so. I think yeah. so. And just knowing that you, you know, you have to, if you want something, you have to make it happen. What did she do? She is CPA. And she yes. still is. Still is. Right. Mm -hmm. Yes. Got it. Yes. I don't think she'll ever stop working. <laughs> ever. <laughs> I guess that is the trait of yes. a workaholic, yes. right? <laughs> yes. For sure. For sure. Okay. Yeah. Last, uh, well, last question in the set. Um, what traits, this kind of is related to the last question, but what traits do you think help you be successful? In moderation, but perfectionist. I tend to be more of a perfectionist, mm -hmm. but you have to be able to use that in moderation. And I think that's very helpful. Mm -hmm. um, knowing when to be perfectionistic and when to let go, I think is a, is a trait that you have to have to be successful. Um, Do you have an example of that? Um, you know, when you're in grad school and you're, you know, studying or you're writing, you know, you're writing papers or you're doing your research, you have to be a perfectionist with time management. You mm -hmm. kind of, there's mm -hmm. no room for anything else um, and you need to get good grades and there's really no flexibility with that. Um, but then when you're working with patients, <laughs> you can't be perfectionistic. You have to be very flexible and you mm -hmm. have to kind of be very open-minded and be okay messing up at times and you know and especially with kids too you have to be okay messing up because if you're not okay messing up you're you're gonna drive yourself crazy by kids you mean your kids my kids yeah my kids right. um you know nothing ever goes as planned mm -hmm. so i think knowing when and nothing goes in planned in life so i think knowing when to modify that mm -hmm. is very helpful yeah. um so i think that I think, uh, traits um Kind of don't stop until I get where I need to be. So um, you're just persistent. as far as goals, yeah, I'm yeah. very persistent. Um, and as far as success, I think it's important to be able, and maybe because I'm a psychologist, but I think it's important to be able to read people and meet them on their level in terms of like any type of relationship, whether it's your marriage, whether it's friendships, colleagues. Patience. Um, I think that's a skill that you need to be successful in life. So uh, meet them on their level, meaning. Meaning adjust your not your personality, but adjust your your approach to people or the way you speak to people, and not again going back to being rigid, not being rigid in how you view yourself, the world, and others. You have to be mm -hmm. able to be flexible. Mm -hmm. um, if somebody needs a little more hand holding, knowing that and doing that. Right. Um, you know, I always, not everyone's, a, you know, not everybody, clearly not everybody is the same. And so you have to be able to be flexible in how you approach them and Got meet it. them where they're at. Yeah. And I'm sure you see that a lot with yeah. your job, yeah. obviously. Yes. So let's talk about that. So, um, you went to school to be a psychologist undergrad? Undergrad. And then I worked in advertising for a couple of years. Okay. How totally did, unrelated. Yeah. So how did that? Um, um I wasn't about? ready for grad school. Gotcha. I just I just wasn't ready yet. Um, you knew that you wanted to, yes, to get your doctorate. Yes, but you weren't quite ready. Correct. For it. Right. Got it. Um, and in retrospect, I'm glad I did that because when you graduate, you're 22 years old, and I just think 
I think it's perfectly okay to not be able to commit to what you want to do yet. Sure. Yeah. I'm a big um, fan of gap years, yeah, whether that's yeah. after high school or yep. college. Yep. Or, yeah. Um, and then I got, then I went to list out for my doctorate, um, in 2001. Let's go back to the advertising. Yeah. Was that a random job that you just saw and It was actually for? a family friend. Okay. I had done an internship and then they hired me. Oh, okay. So you had already had experience with that company mm-hmm. and then yeah. they yeah. hired you. Yep. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. Um, and what kind of work did you do while you were there? I was an account manager for um, a bunch of different companies. Like mm-hmm. one was pool chemicals, <laughs> <laughs> um, a university... Um, I don't even remember so long ago, but it just wasn't my thing. Sure, but you kind of knew that. Yeah, you, yeah. You knew that it was going to be a temporary thing. Anyway, yeah, you yeah. Because you were going to go to grad school. Yeah, yeah. Got it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And when you went to grad school, what is that specific degree in that you get? It's a doctorate? It's a doctorate in clinical psychology. And then I had a, a subspecialty in clinical health psychology. Okay. Which is which I still practice now with, but it's um, working with pe- you know stress and anxiety and depression related to medical illnesses. Got it. So for the lay person out there who has no idea what any of that means, what what would like the day to day look like for you in terms of who you're meeting with, um, what kind of things you do with them? As far as patients go. As far as patients, yeah. So mm-hmm. I I kind of my practice is kind of split into two areas. One would be the health psych area, um, and then the other aspect is just your traditional everyday high functioning anxiety and depression. Mm-hmm. Um, anything more severe, um, I usually refer out or um, is more of a partial program, but for for day to day, it's more of like a high functioning, um, like you know, depression and anxiety, mm-hmm. um, relationship issues, things like that. The health psych area. Um, so I worked at the Center for Neuroscience in Riddle Hospital, and when I was there, I got a lot of referrals from neurologists, and I ended up creating this kind of specialty in working with patients who have neurological disorders. So I mm-hmm. see a lot of patients with epilepsy. Um, a lot of patients with Parkinson's and MS, um, and I do a lot of work for Ep- Epilepsy Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just working with how to manage the stress and anxiety of um, illnesses that are uncertain, unpredictable, and sometimes asymptomatic. So. Give us a, an example, or like, you know, asymptomatic meaning there's meaning, no outward signs. There's no outward right? signs. Um, some, you know, somebody who has epilepsy you would never know they have it unless mm-hmm. you saw them have a seizure. Um, gotcha. And these people live kind of day to day with the uncertainty of, you know, hello, Hi. live with the uncertainty of, um, you know, what if I have a seizure when I'm at work or what if um, I have a seizure while I'm driving. Right. Um, or if they're significant other, if they're dating, you know, if they're young and they're dating, they, they don't know when to tell their significant other or something like that. Got it. So there's anxiety and there's worry about yes. having the condition. Correct. And that's what you're actually yes. working with them. Yep. On. I see, you know, I see a lot of people also with cancer and helping them with that um, through the treatments and through what the diagnosis means to them and their families. That kind of thing. Gotcha. So. Okay. So let's talk about um, stress and anxiety because I feel like, um, I mean, you could tell me if I'm wrong, but I feel like there are a lot of people out there who have some level Everyone. Of worry. Everybody. 
Right. Everybody. And if and if they don't, I know they have more than the more than average. Got it. So if, <laughs> if someone says you tell, tells you that they don't yep. worry a lot, yes. that actually means they probably correct worry more. Correct. If they say they don't worry, I'm not gonna say worry a lot, but sure. if they say that they don't worry, mm-hmm. e- either they don't understand what worry is, or they're just so not in touch with it that it probably is an underlying diagnosis. It's actually th- probably the opposite of what they're of what they're saying, because part of you know everyday life is stress and anxiety, and so if you're not worrying a little bit, then mm-hmm. you're not sitting with discomfort enough, which means you're probably avoiding it. Gotcha. So what would you do if someone does tell you, I don't worry? I ask them how. I ask them to teach me. Right, because <laughs> there, there's some, yes. if they truly don't, then there's some probably some strategy to yes. manage That's right. the anxiety. Right, and so usually it's some sort of avoidance. Like, well, I try not to think about it. And so when I ask them, well, tell me how you try not to think about it. Because, you know, our brains are additive only. So you... It, you know, if I say whatever you do, don't think about the black dog. All you're going to think about is the black dog, dog right. right? So right. I kind of work with them on getting them to acknowledge that their anxiety is there, acknowledge their worry, acknowledge what they're thinking, and learn to be. This is just a very superficial overview of this, but learn sure, to yeah. be objective to it rather than immersed in it. If that makes sense. Do you find that those people are in? It's like a denial thing that it's a sign of weakness if they do admit. Not all, not um, not necessarily. It depends on their personality. Some people definitely think it's a sign of weakness. Other mm-hmm. people are just you know people are so scared to feel bad. Mm. Everyone, no one wants to feel bad, which I get. But you know everybody's searching and trying to figure out ways to not feel uncomfortable mm. and we do that by overloading our schedules we do that by um, drinking we do that by doing drugs we do that by um, you know uh, you know staying in our office way later than we need to you know mm-hmm. those kinds of things got it so so would the it which would you consider that be stress. avoiding yes yeah. yeah so they're avoiding yeah, yeah. the confrontation exactly Got they're it. just avoiding feeling uncomfortable. Yeah. Yeah. Because they think that by adding those things in, they'll be able to just ignore whatever right. is actually bothering Exactly. Them. Right. Got right. It. Which works temporarily, mm-hmm. but when you constantly avoid, you know, what we fancy, you know, in our fancy language call internal discomfort, when you constantly mm-hmm. are trying to avoid it, um, it's, it's, it's the equivalent of whatever you do, don't think about the black dog. Gotcha. It just gets just louder. Just it to a whole new level. Yeah, it just gets louder. Okay. And what I try to teach people is that the more you acknowledge it, um, the less pervasive it becomes. So we're taught very early on, especially in our society, don't feel sad, don't feel angry, you know, get it together, pull yourself up, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, no one ever tells you to just sit with it and let it pass because it will. To be okay with being to be okay. uncomfortable. And not like it, but just to be okay with it. Right. Not look for it. Right. Not to right. go seeking it. Right. Right. Gotcha. Interesting. Do you feel like that's a, um, like, so, you know, our members at Cross Akana, a number of them are young parents, right? They have little ones. So what advice would you have for them working or not working, but, you know, with their little kids in terms of how to talk to them? Um, how to act around them. Um, as far as stress goes? 
Sure, in terms of stress, worry. <laughs> I just said that I've been so mean to my son. <laughs> 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 um, um, <laughs> uh, you kind of have to put yourself first. Now, I don't mean if like a bus is coming, like throw yourself out of the way first. I don't right. mean that. <laughs> but um, you, you have to put yourself first mm -hmm. so that you can be an effective parent to your kids. Um, meaning you ha you know if working out is something that's important to you and you know that it makes you feel relaxed and it you know gives you endorphins and it makes it kind of clears your head and you feel good when you come home there's a trickle down effect for that for your family mm -hmm. um, you know if you work out and you come home and you feel relaxed then your 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 patience for your children is going to be you know significantly better than if you rush out of work and you rush home and you're mad that you didn't work out you know you take it out on your kids take it out on your spouse you go to bed you know in a bad mood and then you just feel bad about the entire evening on top of that which makes you feel even worse so um, when it comes to your members and it comes to working out um, you have to make that a priority even if you feel selfish and guilty so so in other words feel guilty and work out at the same time right don't wait for the guilt to go because away. Because the long-term effect is actually better yeah. for you and your family. That's right. That's right. So I always tell people, if you wait to feel better or less guilty to mm -hmm. do something for yourself, you'll never do it. Just do it then. Do it and at the same time, feel guilty. Do it and at the same time, feel selfish. Mm -hmm. Because the outcome will alleviate that. Right. Got it. So if it's a matter of you know coming home a, an hour earlier or right. an hour later, right. it for the long term would be better to go work out and then Absolutely. come home an hour later. Yeah, and it's more complicated than just work out because you feel better. You know, sure. it's, it's more than that. It's getting you to learn again to sit with feeling guilty and knowing that just because you feel guilty doesn't mean you are. Mm -hmm. And just because you feel selfish doesn't mean you are. Um, and then you come home and you're with your kids and you're in a much better mood and you just generally feel better. And then even down to like you'll you'll be more inclined to eat healthier after you work out and so then your kids are going to model what you're eating and you mm -hmm. know rather than rushing home and just you know kind of saying screw it and ordering pizza got it so right that whole analogy of uh, you know the saying where when the masks come down on an airplane for you to right. put your mask on first exactly. and then you can help the others around Exa you. that's exactly right that's exactly right yeah got it yeah um backing up to um, some of the terminology that we're using, is there a difference between worry and anxiety? So anxiety, if you think of it as like, um, uh, let me think. Anxiety is the umbrella term and then underneath anxiety are different types of anxiety. So there's post-traumatic stress disorder is a type of anxiety. Okay. Panic is a type of anxiety. Worry is a type of anxiety. Oh, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So those are three yeah. under the umbrella term Correct. of anxiety. Yeah. Yeah. Is there one that you work with or one that you see in your patients more? Definitely than generalized anxiety disorder, which is characterized by constant worry about everything and anything. Usually relationships, work, family, finances. It's, it's, you know, and I, I can, you know, I know it sounds, obviously I do more in depth, di you know, um, evaluation than this but one of the questions I ask patients who come in who come in with anxiety um, one of the things they say is are you a worrier and if I get a Meh, sometimes not really I move on to the next question but if I get a oh yeah and mm -hmm. if I say have you been a worrier your whole life and I get a oh yeah then then I kind of know what we're dealing with it's almost like a personality style mm -hmm. 
And do you see that often? Often. Like, like the, oh yeah. 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 And a lot of times it tends, it's, again, it tends to be intelligent people. Um, high achievers. Kind of high achievers. There tends to be a lot of, you know, perfectionism, yet, pro yet procrastination. Um, because procrastination and perfectionism are best friends. They don't go anywhere without each other. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Can you talk about that more? So, so I see, I actually see a lot of um, young adults who are, you know, recent graduates um, or, you know, recent graduates of professional school. And what happens is because they have such perfectionistic tendencies that they're very rigid with and they don't know how to adjust them to certain situations. Mm-hmm. The anxiety of failing or the anxiety of not doing it perfectly is so debilitating that they just won't start it. Gotcha. Um, so gotcha. they have some sort of control, the illusion of control that, well, I failed because I didn't start, not mm -hmm. because my performance was bad. Um, the control lies more with them, even though clearly it doesn't because they're you know, they're setting themselves up for failure anyway. Right, um, right. And I see a ton of procrastination and a ton of perfectionism and worry. Those three are kind of like a trifecta. Have you seen that increase or about say the same, you know, I'm thinking of, um, you know, a ton of like media news articles about like the young generation, yes. millennials, yes. you know, recent college grads. So here's the thing with that. <laughs> Yes, there's an increase for sure, um, mm -hmm. and and I saw it when I would I was I taught undergrad for a while, and when I when I was teaching, I saw this every year as my students, you know, kind of each new class that came in, you saw it more and more. Mm -hmm. But a couple years ago, there was an article that was written, and a lot of people, a lot of people, um, were in their practice seeing their patients who were these young adults who had so much worry, procrastination, perfectionism, so much anxiety, but yet didn't have the typical background or upbringing that would cause this. And so, you know, they'd say, and I saw it in my practice too, you, you know, I, you know, I came from a great family, I had amazing parents, everyone was super supportive, hmm. I don't know why I'm like this. Mm -hmm. And you saw this huge increase in that presentation for whatever reason. And then a couple years ago, there was this great article that was written on psychological immunity. And psychological immunity is our ability to basically handle stress. Okay. And, you know, it goes, ties into resiliency and, um, you know, your ability to handle what life throws at you. Mm -hmm. And so this article was written on how psychologists were starting to see these millennials and how they had so much anxiety, but their backgrounds didn't, didn't, it didn't make sense. It didn't line up. Mm -hmm. um, usually when you have someone with horrible anxiety, you had someone who had inconsistent parenting um, or you know, very overbearing parents or very mm -hmm. neglectful parents, but right. not this. And so what we found, not me, but what, what in my practice when I started to find and what the article said was that with millennial, parents were so worried to have their children feel bad hmm. that they did whatever they could to make them not feel bad and what that looks like is your kid falls at the playground mm -hmm. and you run over and grab them and coddle them as if they just broke all four limbs 
Got it. And not saying you shouldn't run over to see if your kid is okay. Sure. But there's something to be said for letting your kid stand up, so mm-hmm. they're not really hurt. Shake it off. Right. You know, let them know that they're okay and that you're there for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and that they can handle it. So that the next time they fall, they have the internal coping skills to be able to handle it themselves. So fast forward to how that affected my patients. Um, kid doesn't make the soccer team. Mm-hmm. Dad and mom call the soccer coach, freak out why the kids didn't make the soccer team, get involved, right. and then the kid gets on the soccer team. Right. So they don't learn how to fail well. Yeah, so the classic helicopter parent. It wasn't story. even so much helicopter, it was because they could kind of be not involved, okay. but they just jump in when the child is upset. Right. Because they don't want any sort of hurt. Correct. And it's more about the parents not wanting to feel uncomfortable. It really mm-hmm. has nothing to do with the kid. I mean, no one wants their child to hurt. But, but it was, it, for whatever reason with millennials, their parents, it was so extreme. Okay. Um, and so, you know, I would see this with my undergrads. They'd fail an exam. They never show up for class. I'd get phone calls from parents. Asking right. why I can't change level. the grade at the college level. Right. And so then you get these kids that are in college or even, you know, their first jobs and they're not meeting deadlines mm-hmm. because they never had to. Mm-hmm. They got away with they it. They got away with it, you know. And so it's not so much their fault, but it's just that kind of culture. Um, and it reduces what's called their psychological immunity. So they develop a ton of anxiety, a ton of stress. It usually hits them in college and right after college because... They can't cope with things, even the smallest of things. You know, you go through a breakup. You have to be able to deal with that. You know, you mm-hmm. you don't get the job you want. You can't have your parents call and get you in. So I do see a rise of that. Um, again, not with everybody, but right. definitely with my patients who have a ton of anxiety, who have these, like, really, really good upbringings. Nothing bad happened. And it's all out of love. It's not like these parents are doing this to be evil sure. parents. They sure. just they think they're helping. Yeah doing what's best in their minds Correct. for their kids right. when in the long run it's hurting right. because they're not developing coping skills. Correct, right. Gotcha. Yep. And so when little things in life happen, that's why the anxiety and the perfectionism and the procrastination go so high because they don't have these internal coping skills because they've never had to. The anxiety's always been removed for them. Got it. So let's say you are working with a um, like a recent college grad mm-hmm. where that's happened. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you even begin, you know, developing yeah. what I mean is the goal to develop yeah. their coping skills? Yeah, the goal is to develop their coping skills. The goal is also for them to understand the patterns that led up to this. Mm-hmm. That there's a reason. It's not that they can't do it. They can do it. They just haven't had the opportunity to do it and so you create these kind of small opportunities for them to feel uncomfortable you know you don't throw them to the wolves but you start with the easiest thing possible and they need the they need the experience so they can build the confidence that like oh yeah that was hard but okay I did it I can handle this and then they can move on to the next thing Mm -hmm. Um, and so that's so it's more about it's more about getting them to um, see the patterns as to why they got to where they are. So when you're working with your patients, do you have a, um, a method for a, um, like a particular um, framework 
that you mm-hmm. use with your patients? Because I know, I mean, having a small background in mm-hmm. psychology, I know that there are different, you know, ways of working with. So, so a cognitive behavior therapist. Um, CBT. CBT. But I, I was trained also in acceptance and commitment therapy, which is, I don't know how much you know about that with this. So it's, um, it takes more of a, kind of, I'll say Eastern philosophy type approach where cognitive behavior therapy is great. It has its place with certain diagnoses. If somebody's super depressed and it's kind of an acute depression, you mm-hmm. can work with them on challenging their thinking. Okay. When you have someone who has generalized anxiety, who's had it their entire life, you can't really challenge their thinking because it's it, it's been the same way their entire life. It's been their framework yes. their entire life. So yeah. sometimes, and I'm sure cognitive behavior therapists will maybe disagree with me on this, but. Um, Acceptance and commitment therapy is more of acknowledging the thought that's there, but not challenging it. You're more noticing it as a passing thought. You're not holding on to it. You're not justifying it. You're not finding evidence for or against that thought. Mm-hmm. Um, you're kind of watching it go by, and there's different strategies used with that. Because then it takes the responsibility and the, the heaviness off of the patient of having to try to challenge that. Because someone with generalized anxiety disorder, if I say... You know, if they have the thought, well, I know I'm going to lose my job. They all think I'm horrible. And I say, okay, you know, we talk about that. That's the thought that you're having. Let's, you know, mentally put it on your post-it note and kind of watch it go by. That's one thing. But if I say to them, well, give me the evidence why you think that's true. They could say, well, because I was late to work or this or that. And I say, give me the evidence for that not to be true. And They'll say, well, I'm a good employee. I've never missed a day of work. Mm -hmm. But it's always followed by a but. So you end up playing ping pong in their head back and forth, which does no good. And it takes them out of the moment anyway. So Got it. So that strategy of asking them for the evidence would be CBT. Yes. But you try not to do that because basically their whole way of thinking is to um, think negatively about. Yeah. And also it, it, it... it keeps them stuck in their head mm-hmm. rather than acknowledging it as a thought, not what the thought says, just that it's a thought. And it kind of frees you up to be present, if that Got makes it. sense. Um, otherwise, you're stuck in your head playing ping pong for all the evidence for and against. Sure, and not really getting anywhere. Right, okay. right, right. What are your thoughts on meditation? I think it's great. I use it often. Um, it anything that helps the person be present mm-hmm. um, will always lead to better functioning. Do you have a preferred um, app or, you know, there's Headspace, there's... Um... Um, so I don't use, I haven't used any apps for that. It's more kind of strategies I've used in grad school and kind of learned at conferences since then. Gotcha. Um, but a lot of patients will have like meditation CDs that they use on mm-hmm. their own. Um, I do a lot of more kind of mindfulness strategies, mm-hmm. um, you know, getting them to kind of sit and be aware of how their body feels on the couch and how their back feels against the couch and um, how their toes feel in their shoes, getting them to kind of use their body as an anchor point to stay present. Okay, and so you actually do those meditation practices in, in the, most, with, yeah, in the yeah. session. Mm-hmm. Okay. And then because, you know, thoughts come into our head 24-7. There's nothing we can do about it. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a 
if you think of a, a, a train, let's say, um, you know, you can either get on the train or you can stand at the station and watch it go by. And so I, I want patients to kind of stand at the station and watch the thought go by. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. And then do you, you recommend that they meditate outside of yes. the session too? Mm -hmm. I do. Yep. Yep. And, and the mindfulness practices, even what they can do it while they're washing dishes. Right. You know, how the soap feels on their hands. And then when a thought comes into your mind to take you out of that moment, don't not think about it. Just acknowledge that you kind of, I call it leaving the building. Mm -hmm. Just acknowledge. All right. So uh, we got cut off, but um, my last question would just be, you know, do you have any parting thoughts or things that you would want people to know, um, whether it's related to what we were talking about or mm -hmm. not. Um, so definitely that feeling bad is okay and normal and necessary. Um, we can't just pick the feelings that we want to have because they feel good. Mm -hmm. um, anger and worry and sadness and sometimes even, you know, not clinical depression, but just feeling down mm -hmm. um, are all completely normal and part of life. And so the problem isn't when you feel sad. The problem is when you do everything in your power to, to not feel that in the moment by making avoided choices. Like, you know, um, somebody who has a, a tremendous amount of anxiety and it's unbearable to them. So to get rid of it, they don't call their friends back for two weeks and kind of fall off the face of the earth. You know, that, mm -hmm. that kind of behavioral choice is an avoidance and it actually can lead to more anxiety, more depression. So if you feel bad, acknowledge that you feel bad, don't run from it, sit with it, it will pass. It will pass if you do absolutely nothing. And I was, I was saying it's kind of like a wave. You know with 100% certainty it's gonna peak and you know with 100% certainty if you do absolutely nothing, it's gonna come down. And the problem is, is that when it peaks, people scramble to get rid of it, when in fact, trying to get rid of it is what makes it stay longer. It prolongs it. It prolongs it. So when you let go of it, and I don't mean not think about it, I don't mean ignore it, because that's actually holding on to it. Mm -hmm. When you acknowledge that it's there and you're willing to feel uncomfortable, it passes so much sooner. And you also give yourself the confidence that you could handle that uncomfortable emotion. So the next time it comes up, because it will, um, you have that under your belt, you know that you can handle it. Running from it and avoiding it just kind of makes us that much more anxious to, to feel bad. You know, people don't like feeling bad. Gotcha. And it's at that point, and I think this might have been cut off, but you were saying at the point where it's paralyzing you, mm -hmm. that's yeah. probably Yeah, so everybody, every single person is going to at some point, or even moment to moment, you know, feel angry, feel sad, feel agitated, feel depressed, feel, um, I'll say down, I won't say depressed, but feel down or, mm -hmm. um, that's completely normal. And like, you know, like I had said earlier, worry is motivating. So some degree of worry is healthy. You know, some degree of anger is healthy. Um, you know, they're motivating, they're motivate, they're motivators. So mm -hmm. it's only, I hate saying bad, but it's only bad when, the anxiety is so paralyzing that you get stuck in your own head or you're so angry that you're punching holes in your wall um, or you know you're so sad that your view of yourself and others and, and the world around you is, is so so distorted that you are not getting out of bed in the morning mm -hmm. um, you know then that's when it becomes an issue you know yeah. and, and also or your worry is just so 
constant that you find yourself avoiding places and people because you don't want to deal. And then you isolate more and get, you know, it's a vicious cycle. So, you know, basically if you feel any of those emotions, it's, it's just as normal as feeling happy. Got it. Right. So feelings, any feeling is fine, but it's, if it's interfering with your life or your, and it's not that the feeling interferes with your life, it's your behaviors that interfere. Right. It's you staying in bed and not doing what you normally do in terms of getting up, going to work and right. Right. Got it. Yeah. Your day-to-day actions. Yeah. And then it, this is for another discussion, but then that leads into the issue of high-functioning anxiety and high-functioning depression, which is mm. very different than feeling anxious and still going to work. Okay. Yeah. Got it. We might have to say that part, yeah. part yeah. two. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, if anybody has any questions or uh, things you want me to pass on to Jamie, you can, you can feel free to get in touch with me, Chris at crossocana.com. Jamie, thank you so much. Sure, my and uh, we'll probably be back for round two at some point. Hey folks, thanks for taking the time to listen to this week's episode of Cross O'Connor Radio. And thank you to Jamie Zuckerman for taking her time to explain and talk about things that are pretty heavy, but definitely important as they affect either you or uh, people you know uh, in their everyday lives. Um, coming up, this Labor Day Monday, we are going to run a weekend schedule at CrossFit Kana, so 9 a.m. and 10 a.m. classes, and then we're going to hang out and barbecue, and this is a friends and family workout, so it's completely free for everyone, members and non-members alike. We're going to have a workout that can be scaled to any ability, and uh, you will have an option to either work solo or work in partners, so it will be accessible to everyone. You can find us on the socials, on Facebook and Instagram at CrossFit Kana, K-A-N-N-A. In the meantime, be sure to learn, work hard, and have fun.